a couple of kind of regrets that people have. One is actions that we took that we shouldn't have. The other one is actions that we should have taken, but we didn't. And today I want to talk about some actions that you should take, some opportunities that you need to pay attention to. And a lot of people are afraid to step out in faith because it involves risk. But if you're a Christian, there's no such thing as zero risk. Just write that down on your listening guide. If you are a Christ follower, there's no such thing as zero risk. If you aren't risking something, then I would question how closely you are following God and whether you're following God at all. When we started New Life, um, there was no guarantee that we would succeed. We're almost nine years old. uh, June 22nd, we'll be nine years old as a church. In fact, a lot of people in this town didn't want us to succeed because they thought that we were a threat. And... uh, 22 or 23, I don't remember the exact number of us, started on June 22nd on a Saturday night, not knowing what God was going to do with our church over these past nine years, this crazy journey that we've been on. We're in our fourth location as a church. The first place we met was what is now the Verizon building. We met there for six months, and then we moved into what is now the Landmark School. And then we went from there, we went to the old First Baptist building, and then um, three years ago, we bought this old skating rink, which was just horrendous looking, and we remodeled it, and we moved in here on May 4th, um, three years ago. And every time that we were going to move, it involved risk. To say that things were uncertain um, is an understatement. And uh, the thing is, though, when we decided that God wanted us to do that and we took those steps of faith, we took those risks, every time we have moved, we've doubled in size. And, you know, looking back, I kind of wish God would let us double in size before we have to do anything great, before we have to worry about moving or doing something new. But God doesn't work that way because he wants us to exhibit faith. And faith requires that I step out and do something that I cannot do in my own power. And in fact, the Bible says that faith is the only thing that pleases God. So if you're not stepping out in faith, there is no way. It is impossible to be pleasing God. And, And what I want you to know is that right now, there are opportunities in your life. There are things that are facing you right now. Opportunities that God has brought into your life, that God has brought you face to face with, that he wants you to step out and take those opportunities, but some of you are going to miss it. Some of you are going to miss it because you're just flat afraid. You're afraid to step out in faith. You're afraid to really trust God. If we got down deep into what's going on in your heart and your mind, you're afraid to step out in faith. Some of you, though, you're going to miss what God wants for you just because of pride, because you'd rather do your own thing than God's thing. Some of you, it's just selfish motives. Some of you, it's wrong priorities. Some of you, it's lack of discernment. And quite honestly, for some of you, it's just lack of paying attention. It's not realizing that God shows up every day and he expects us to take steps of faith every day. And he brings opportunities across our path every day. And we just don't stink and pay attention. I don't want you to miss those things. I want to look at one of the coolest books in in the Bible. And in fact, this wasn't even what I was planning to preach today. And just the more I I, I prayed about it, the more I felt like God was showing me that I needed to share this. And I don't even know why. And and this whole thing just came up uh, this week. And so it's the the story of Esther in the Old Testament. And uh, Esther is, is a story of when God called some individuals to literally risk everything to save the people of God. And uh, this is a this is kind of a it's a coolest book, but it's kind of a strange book, too, because it's the only book in the Bible that never mentions God. Never calls his name, never mentions prayer. But I think you're going to see by the time we finish today that God's fingerprints are all over this story. Well, let's set the background. If you've got your uh, smartphones, I didn't say this a couple weeks ago, and you have 
the Bible on your smartphone. Take that out if you've got your Bibles. We're going to be flying through the book of Esther. It's ten chapters. We're going to fly through this today. Esther 1, 1. King Xerxes of Persia lived in, the, in this capital city of Susa and ruled 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. Here's a picture of his empire. And, and that looks really clear, doesn't it? If it doesn't, you've got eye trouble. Not really. It's really bad. Um, I just wanted you to see kind of the scope of his empire. 127 provinces. This guy is king over. He has a vast empire. He's a great organizer. He is, he's a, a good king. And he has 127 provinces. And he throws a party. And he invites the noble people from all these provinces to come. And it's a six-month party. How'd you like to pay the tab for that one? Esther 1.3. For 180 days, he showed off his wealth and spent a lot of money to impress his guests with the greatness of his kingdom. Now, if you read historians, they tell us that what's going on here is he spent about four years planning a battle against Greece. He was going to go fight the Greeks because they had defeated his father and he wanted to avenge the defeat of his father. So he spends four years planning this battle. And then probably this six-month party is when he invited all of his nobles and all of his military men to come together. And he has this great party, but he's getting them on board with the plan. So they go and they have this, this battle against the Greeks. They win the first battle. Great victory. They go on to the second battle. They get whipped and they come back home. And he throws another party. Are you sensing a theme? This dude likes party. So he's had a six-month party, goes to battle, comes back, throws a seven-day party. Esther 1.5. King Xerxes soon uh, gave another dinner and invited everyone in the city of Susa, that's his capital, no matter who they were. The eating and drinking lasted seven days in the beautiful palace gardens. Now, if you read this, this is an awesome story. If you read it, you'll see that, that all kinds of stuff is going on. But there's two different parties going on. There's a party for men... And then Queen Vashti is having a party for women. Does that ever happen? Do women ever separate from the men at parties and kind of gather and really do their own thing? Well, that's what's happening intentionally here. She's throwing a party. Now, the men come home because they're defeated. They have their tails between their legs. And so they, they go out and they buy a bunch of Bud Light and they decide to drink their troubles away. Here we go. And they have this party for seven days. At the end of the seven days, they are inebriated. In the New Living Translation, it says that the heart of the king was feeling happy because of much wine. In the New uh, American Standard, it says the heart of the king was merry with much wine. Dude was plastered. And here's what goes on. So he says, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing this, but you got, he says, you guys, I, I need, you guys should see my wife. She's so hot. That's, a, that's in the scripture. You're going to have to read it for yourself. You don't have your Bible? Go read it. It's there. And so what he wants to do is he wants to bring his wife in front of all of these drunken dudes so that they can see how beautiful she is. And she says no. He sends the, his, his servants to go get her and she's like, not going to do it. Ain't coming. You think that sobered him up? So, in his semi-sobered state... He says to his nobles, his wise men, wise men, he says, what are we going to do about this? This has never happened before. So his wise men, they say, oh, dude, you got to do something. Again, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but you got to read this, this whole book. He says, you got to, they say, you got to do something because if your wife disobeys you, all our wives are going to disobey us. Now, this was 480 B.C., right in there, when a woman did not disobey her husband, and especially the queen didn't disobey the king. And they're like, we have got trouble, and all hell is going to break loose unless you make an example out of her. And, and semi-sober Xerxes goes, that's a great idea. And so they, they kick her out of being queen. 
She's no longer queen. Well, a while later, he gets lonely because another um, characteristic of inebriated men is they don't think through things. And he's not thinking through that if I get rid of her, I no longer have her. So he gets lonely. And he tells his men and these same wise men say, okay, we got, we got an idea. We're going to have a beauty pageant through all the 127 provinces. And we're going to find the prettiest woman, the hottest woman in the kingdom to be your new queen. And he's like, that's a great idea. So they do this. Now, this is such an elaborate process that they spend an entire year. They get all of these women. They take them in. They train them in how they're supposed to act. They give them all of these beauty products. Twelve months of beauty products so that they are looking really radiant and hot. And then they parade them one at a time before the king. He can spend as much time or as little time as he wants to with them. And he spends time with them. And lo and behold, do you know who he falls for? I mean, what are the odds that he's going to choose a Jewish orphan named Esther who's been raised by her cousin Mordecai because, because her parents were killed. What are the odds? It's just a coincidence, right? Just a coincidence that Esther becomes queen. Well, this I'm telling you, I, how many of you would make a commitment? It's 10 chapters, take you less than 30 minutes. How many of you would make a commitment right now to read Esther this week? Let me see your hand. Four of us. Four of us. I'm kidding. Okay. If you would make that commitment, I'm t- it's got everything. It's got romance. It's got, it's got intrigue. It's got good guys, bad guys, beauty queen. It's got it all in 30 minutes. I'm, there is not a romance novel out there. There's not a TV show that you can watch that's going to be any better. I'm telling you, you read this, you're going, what's going to happen next? What's going to happen next? It's awesome. I've read the story a hundred times, and this week I was going, this is great stuff. So write that on your, on your uh, registration card if you're going to do that. Because I'm going to pray that God will remind you every day of the commitment you made. To read. Okay. Mordecai is her cousin, and his name literally means short man. So, shorty, okay? How'd you like that name? He instructs Esther not to tell anyone that she's a Jew. This ends up being brilliant here in a minute, but I'm not going to get ahead of myself there. When Esther becomes queen, then she tells uh, the king about Mordecai. He becomes a palace official, and he starts hanging out at the king's gate. Now, if you're not a palace official where you want to be next, the next hierarchy is to be at the king's gate because this is where all the politicians hang out. And they conduct business. They buy land, they sell land, they do all of their business at the king's gate. And so Mordecai is hanging out there with the movers and the shakers, kind of like the city hall of the day. And now we get to verse 21 of chapter 2. One day as Mordecai was on duty at the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, Big Thana and Teresh, if you don't know what that is, we'll explain later, don't have time now, who were guards at the door of the king's private quarters, became angry at King Xerxes and plotted to assassinate him. But Mordecai, Shorty, heard about the plot and gave the information to Queen Esther. She then told the king about it and gave Shorty credit for the report. When an investigation was made and Mordecai's story was found to be true, the two men were impaled on a sharpened pole. Now, this was before crucifixion. So what they would do is they would have this sharp stick or a series of sharp sticks where they would take your body and slam you down on it so that sticks are sticking out of you. Get the point? So did they, huh? All right. Now, this is a huge part of the story. It's going to come back later. Everything does. It's great writing. And this is just, this is just, this is not even made up. It's not fiction. It's better than fiction. Now, to this point, we met Queen Esther, the beauty queen. We met King Xerxes and we met Mordecai Shorty. But for the story to be really good, we got to have a villain. His name is Haman. Chapter 3, verse 1. Sometime later, King Xerxes promoted Haman 
son of Hamadatha, the Agite, over all the other nobles, making him the most powerful official in the empire. All the king's officials would bow down before Haman to show him respect whenever he passed by, for so the king had commanded. But Mordecai refused to bow down or show him respect. Then the palace officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why are you disobeying the king's command? They spoke to him day after day, but still he refused to comply with the order. We don't know exactly why in one translation it says because he was a Jew and, and maybe it had something to do with religion, but I just think he, he knew what kind of man he was. He wasn't going to bow down to this man because of his character. We don't know for sure, but anyway, he wouldn't bow down. So they spoke to Haman about this to see if he would tolerate Mordecai's conduct since Mordecai had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not bow down or show him respect, he was filled with rage. He had learned of Mordecai's nationality, so he decided it was not enough to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Instead, he looked for a way to destroy all of the Jews throughout the entire empire of Xerxes. We're talking hundreds of thousands of Jews, probably in the millions, hundreds and thousands of men. And he wanted to kill them all because Shorty wouldn't bow. Some people, it's not enough that they're the number two in the nation. They get caught up on the one thing they can't control. And that's that one guy won't give them honor. He must have short man syndrome himself. Haman must have been a short dude. Because it wasn't enough that everyone else bowed to him. This one Jew wouldn't bow to him and it consumed him. So he plotted a way to wipe out the entire race. Now, part of his religion was they would throw dice to figure out when you should do something. So he and his friends get together and they throw dice and it's called Pur, P-U-R. And, and later at the end of the book, you're going to see that the Jews celebrate the festival of Purim, uh, which means this whole thing that happened here. But they were throwing dice and they figure out from the dice that, that the day they're supposed to wipe out the entire nation of the Jews is 14 Adar, which would be one year after they started throwing the dice. After all, they had to have time to plot. So they got a year. Now... Now they had a date. Haman goes to the king and he says, Hey, king, we've got these really strange people living amongst us and they serve weird gods and they won't respect me. And if they won't respect me, that means they sure won't respect you either. So we need to kill them. And Xerxes goes, okay. Takes off his ring because that's how you knew that a law was official. His signet ring that he would mash down into the wax. He takes off his ring and he says to Haman, his number two guy, he says, whatever pleases you, man, go ahead and do it. Stamp my seal on it. Let's wipe them out. So the new law says on 14 Adar next year, it will be free kill a Jew day. Kill as many Jews as you want to. This is in the law. Kill as many Jews as you want to and you will not be prosecuted. Oh, and by the way, for every Jew you kill, you get to take everything they own. Now, if you're a Jew and the law is read in your hometown, how do you feel? Just imagine that that we're with hundreds of thousands of Americans in the Middle East. And all of a sudden a law comes down and says, on the 14th of April next year, you can kill as many Americans as you want and whatever they have is yours. How do you think we would feel? Pretty happy? No. Mordecai heard about it and he goes into mourning. And by the way, this is not the first time that, that a group or an individual has tried to wipe out the Jews. You remember all the, back, all the way back when Moses was uh, in Egypt when he was a baby, Pharaoh tried to wipe out all the males of the Jews and keep the females because he knew that eventually they would just absorb them into the Egyptian culture and God protected them. Throughout history, there's always been somebody trying to wipe out the Jews. It comes up to Adolf Hitler and even to modern day Hamas. 
Now, back to the story. Mordecai puts on sackcloth, which is this really rough stuff, and it was, a, it was an outward demonstration that you were on, in complete turmoil inside about something that was going on. It was mourning. And it doesn't say he prayed, but any good Jew who's in mourning fasts and prays. And he's running around the king's court, and this is a bad idea, because if the king sees one of his officials wearing sackcloth, he could be put to death. So Esther hears about it. She hears that Mordecai's out there, and he's all messed up. He's not cleaned up, and the king can't see you unclean. So she sends him these clothes and says, put them on. And he says, I can't, because I'm in mourning. And, and you know this message keeps going back and forth. And finally, she says, what's going on? So he tells her. He says, on this day, the Jews are going to be wiped out. And he says, oh, by the way, you have to go to the king and ask him for help. And, and Esther freezes because the law of the Medes and the Persians, and this was a law to protect the king from unwanted interruptions, was that you do not come before the king and go, oh, hey, just thought I'd stop in and say hi, because you could die for that. She's not been summoned to him in a month. And she goes, oh, oh, oh no, 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 no. I, I can't go because I could die. And so Mordecai, uh, this instantly becomes a life or death situation. And, and here's what Mordecai says to her in chapter 4, verse 13. Mordecai sent this reply to Esther. Don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape when all the other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some, of the, some other place. But you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this. I think Mordecai is saying to her, it's no accident that you're queen. It's not a coincidence that you're here at this time in history. And Mordecai's words to her are the same words that I have for you today. It is no accident that you live in this point in history. It's no coincidence that you're here today. God worked to bring you here today to hear a message. And I want you to know four things that Mordecai says you're going to miss. Same thing he said to her. Four things you will miss if you don't seize the opportunities that God lays right in front of you. On a regular basis. Number one, Mordecai says to her, your fate will be like the rest of the crowd. He says, don't you think you're going to escape? Even though she was a queen, when her nationality was found out, she would be killed just like the rest of them if she didn't seize on her opportunity to talk to the king. And I want you to know that maintaining status quo is not a biblical concept. I double dog dare you to find it in scripture, bring it to me, and I'll stand up here and make a correction. But I've never seen maintaining the status quo be a biblical concept. You do not get to stay where you are and go with God at the same time. If you're comfortable in the Christian life, then I question whether you're regularly in the presence of God. Because when I come into the presence of, of God, His holiness makes me uncomfortable. His will is so big and so hard. That there's no way I can do it and it makes me uncomfortable. My sinfulness in the presence of an almighty, all-powerful, sinless God makes me uncomfortable. And if you're comfortable as a Christian, you're not in the presence of God. Because His holiness will wear you out. God's will is bigger, harder, more expensive and messier than anything I could choose to do for myself. But if I disobey what God calls me to do, I'll be no different than millions of people lying in their graves all over this planet who did nothing of consequence that lasted past death. And I don't want to be that guy. And I don't think you want to be that guy or that girl either. Your life is significant. But don't think you can disobey God or sit there and do nothing and be used by God. 
So your fate will be like the rest of the crowd if you do not seize opportunities that God puts in front of you. Number two, God will replace you with someone else. Mordecai said, um, God's going to get this job done with you or without you, Esther. But he will save his own people. When God is involved, it's not the giftedness of the individual that matters, that, that motivates God's blessing. More often than not, it's the person's willingness to move, to obey when God says when and where to move. That's the person God uses for his glory. So God can work through you or God can work without you. Which would you rather happen? Number three, you could lose more than an opportunity. Mordecai told Esther that if she sat back and did nothing, she would die along with the rest of her people. And when it comes to Christians in the church, doing the right, th- right thing can sometimes involve risk. But the overwhelming message of the Bible is that failure is not near as big an obstacle to God trying something and failing than just not trying. God can overcome your biggest regrets. He's done it regularly here at New Life. Overcome people's worst nightmares. But he doesn't do it unless someone steps out in faith and says, God, I don't understand it. I don't even really like it. But here I am. Use me, warts, blemishes, and all. Which would you rather happen? God work through you or God work without you? Don't miss those opportunities. Number four. You could miss out on the reason you were born. I'm convinced there is nothing more important than what the local church is doing. And there's nothing like the local church when the local church is working right. Marriages get healed. People whose destinies are hell. Suddenly, because of what Jesus did on the cross, their destiny can be changed to heaven if they'll ask him to come into their lives. People who are destroyed by drugs can come out of drugs. People who've been in prison can be set free, not just physically, but they can be set free spiritually, emotionally. And we see that. And I don't think there's anything else in the world I would rather be spending my time doing than than working in, serving in a local church. Because what we do matters. Again, come tell me. Show me where I'm wrong. Show me that any secular thing that's going on matters as much as the kingdom of God. If you can do it, I'll stand up here and I'll proclaim it. Now, Mordecai pointed out that if you don't go to the king, the whole reason you were born would be missed. Your purpose in life. It was not a coincidence that she was chosen as queen. It was not a coincidence that Mordecai overheard an assassination plot against the king. It was not a coincidence that the king couldn't sleep on the night, the very night that Haman is going to him to to ask him to kill Mordecai. He said, I need to, I need to kill Mordecai. He's going to the king the next day. That night, the king can't sleep. And it's not a coincidence that you're here today. And when a Christian is following God, nothing is a coincidence. Well, Esther is convinced and we pick it up in verse 15 of chapter four. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go and gather together all the Jews of Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will do the same. And then, though it is against the law, I will go in to see the king and the coolest words in this whole story. If I must die, I must die. She said, I'm going to die. If I'm going to die, I'm going to die doing what's right. 
I want those words spoken about me. He died doing what's right. Not whining and complaining. Not criticizing others. Not gossiping. He died doing what's right. You want to put that on my tombstone? That'd be great. I'm giving you permission. Somebody tell Janie. Put that on my tombstone. She said she's actually going to have me buried in my recliner because I love my recliner and she's just going to bronze the thing and stick it in the ground. And that's cool with me. But on there somewhere, put a plaque that says he died doing what's right when he wasn't sitting in his recliner. Well, Esther goes and, you know, she's, she realizes she can die. And, of course, he welcomes her. This wouldn't be the great story if, if the king didn't welcome her. And he says, what do you want? And she said, well, he says, I'll give you half of my kingdom up to half my... Whatever you want. You've pleased me. And she said, I want you and Haman to come to my house tomorrow for a banquet. Okay. So they do. And Haman thinks he has arrived because the queen has invited only the king and him to come to this banquet. And he's elated. He can't wait to go home and brag to everyone. And he brags a lot in this whole story about what's happened until he passes the king's gate. And guess who won't bow down to him again? Mordecai. And he gets ticked off. So he goes home and he gathers everybody together. And he says, here's what's happened. And his family says, okay, build, you know, the poles I told you about where they impale people, the sticks. They call it a gallows, but really it was a sharp stick. And they said, but don't just build any sharp stick. Build it 75 feet high. The reason was because that was higher than any trees. And everyone around could see this body hanging on a 75 foot foot pole. And they would say, oh, do not mess with Haman. This is what happens to the person who opposes Haman. Well, for some strange reason, they go to this banquet and uh, the king says, what do you want? And she says, well, come back tomorrow. I want, if you really want to know what I want, come back tomorrow. So the king can't sleep that tonight, that night. It's no coincidence. And so he calls his, one of his servants. This is just hilarious to me. Calls his servant and he said, Hey, go get the records of my reign as king, the history of the country, and read it to me. Dude's pretty smart. I fell asleep many times reading history in college. I'd wake up at little drool spots on my book. I hated reading history. He's like, read history to me because that will put me to sleep. And it just so happens that the recorder guy starts reading to him and he picks out the story when Mordecai heard about the assassination plot and warned the king and the king kills the guys and the king goes, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. Did we ever do anything to honor that guy? Recorder guy says, no, we didn't. That's an oversight. He says, we need to do something. So, okay, it's the next day now. And the king says, we got to honor that guy. And so he says, is there anyone important out in the courtyard? Guess who's come early to request Mordecai's death? Of course there's someone important in the courtyard. It's Haman. And he goes, well, bring him in quickly. Bring him in. He's the number two guy. Great guy. Great important guy. Look what happens in chapter 6, verse 6. So Haman came in and the king said, what should I do to honor a man who truly pleases me? And Haman thought to himself, whom would the king wish to honor more than me? So he replied, if the king wishes to honor someone, he should bring out one of the king's own royal robes, as well as a horse that the king himself has ridden, one with a royal emblem on its head. If you wore clothes that the king wore, if you rode on the horse, it was as if you were a member of the family. Let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials and let him see that the man whom the king wishes to honor is dressed in the king's robes and led through the city square on the king's horse. Have the officials shout as they go. This is what the king does for someone he wishes to honor. 
Yo, check it out. This is how the king treats people he likes. And the king goes, that's a great idea. Go do that for Mordecai. Quick, take the robes in my horse and do just as you've said for Mordecai the Jew who sits at the gate. And you've got to picture this. Leave out nothing you have suggested. So Haman took the robes and put them on Mordecai, placed them on the king's own horse and led him through the city square shouting, this is what the king does to someone he wishes honor. Excuse me, what did you say, Haman? I said, this is what the king does. Afterward, Mordecai returned to the palace gate. He went back to work. Mordecai wasn't all that impressed by it. But Haman hurried home dejected and completely humiliated. And he tells his wife and his friends, the ones that told him to build this big, tall, 75-foot pole, said, told him what happened. And, and the literal translation is, dude, you're in deep doo-doo. <laughs> and he was. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if, if you're the nation of Israel... 50, 100, 200, 1,000 years later. And you turn in the Old Testament and you come to Esther. And you start reading. You're looking at your situation. And your situation is, there's some crazy man or crazy organization that's trying to wipe you out. Trying to take you off the face of the planet. And you start reading about, God is always in control. God is never surprised. God knows everything that's going on. Do you think you might be comforted? God's plan always wins. Doesn't matter who the king is. It doesn't matter who the president is. God's plan always wins. No one can stand against God. In Proverbs 21.1, we're told, The king's heart is like a stream of water directed by the Lord. He guides it wherever he pleases. I'm not going to tell you the rest of the story. Because I want you to read it. But God wins. Haman gets the point. All ten of his sons get the point. But here's what I want you to know. Your boss's heart is like a stream of water directed by the Lord wherever he wants it to go. Your husband's heart is like a stream of water. Directed by the Lord, wherever He wants to go. Your spouse, your wife's heart is like a stream of water. Directed by the Lord, wherever He wants it to go. Your child that you're having trouble with, their heart is like a stream of water that God can direct wherever He wants it to go. The issue is not the person that you're having problems with. The issue is you. Will you do what's right, no matter what the cost... And just see if God will use you. A double dog dare you to do that. Would you bow your heads for just a moment? Some of you really did think you were coming here just by coincidence. Whether someone was being baptized or whether it just happened to be the weekend you were free. (laughs) But if God is God, if what the Bible says is true, 
Can you imagine the God of the universe, how he wants to capture the hearts of the people in this room to make a difference? And I know you got to work hard. The Bible tells us to work hard at your job. I know you got to provide for your family. The Bible says to provide for your family. But what are you doing right now? What is your life involved in that will last beyond your life on this planet? Could we put a tombstone over your grave that said, he or she died doing what is right? If the answer to that is no, you got some choices to make. Some of you need to put your heart in Christ's control for the first time. The Bible says if you call on the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. So the way we do that here is we just say, in your mind, you pray, God, I know I'm a sinner. I know I've messed up. I believe Jesus died on the cross to save me. Please forgive me. And please lead me the rest of my life. That's a simple transaction. But it's the most costly gift that you can ever receive being adopted into God's family. The four individuals that were baptized up here today, they were baptized as an act of obedience to Jesus Christ. Baptism does not save you. Baptism is a picture of what's already happened inside of you. And it's a public testimony to everyone that I do not belong to myself anymore. I belong to God. I'm a member of his family. And some of you need to be baptized. We could baptize next week out at Lakeview. We could baptize in the lake. We could baptize in the pool. Doesn't matter to me. But some of you need to take a step of obedience. And some of you think it's not that big a deal. Well, that's the first thing you're commanded to do by your Lord and your Savior after you're saved. And if you're going to bail on the first commandment, I'm not real sure that He's going to give you more. We talk a lot about relationships around here and and a lot of you have messed up relationships. And I'm just going to tell you something that's haunted me for years. The more mature person will always make the first move to reconcile. And I don't want to be the more mature person most of the time. But it's right. Well, what if they reject me? What if they do? Is it going to cost you your life? We've got a Jewish girl who risks her life. I think you can take a first step to reconcile a relationship with someone who's ticked off at you. I want to have just a moment of silence and I want you to ask God, what is it that I'm supposed to take from this service today? Just silently pray that. God, show me what I'm supposed to take from today.